and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Edom to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Please turn also to our text for this morning, Revelation chapter 12. So we have the two bookends, Genesis, the first book, Revelation, the last book. Our text for this morning is Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. This also is God's holy word. And And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman... Was given, to, was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you for you indeed are in control of every detail of history, every detail of our lives, that you control 
the raising up of rulers and their bringing down. Father, we acknowledge that you are the one who protects and provides for your bride, the church. Father, we thank you that though in weakness uh, she proceeds, that she advances. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we would come to understand that in our weakness we come to know your power. Father, we thank you that though Satan roams around like a roaring lion, that he indeed is a conquered foe. We pray, Father, that uh, we uh, would not believe his lies and his deceptions, that we would not follow his distractions. Instead, that our eyes would be fixed upon you, that we would cling closely, that we would cling tightly to our Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed, are, who indeed is our only hope for forgiveness. Father, we pray that if any are here who have not committed their lives to Christ, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do this great work of, of, of conversion, that life would be changed, that commitments would be made, and, Father, that sinners would come to know Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that your, your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> I recall seeing one of these uh, Animal Kingdom TV episodes. It was about the, this animal called the Komodo dragon. Now, supposedly they live on these islands in Indonesia. <clears throat> and they talked about the dry season or the dry spell. And uh, there in the wild, all the animals need to drink from the watering hole. Uh, meaning that uh, they don't have water faucets, they don't have hoses, so they all must drink from these ponds. And when there's a long period without rain, then the, the number of watering holes decrease. And in that area, it went down to one. That was only a few inches of water left. And the Komodo dragons, intelligent as they are, they laid in that water because they were saying, hey, we know that all the other animals must come here to drink. So there they were sitting in that pond, only a few inches. And you could see some of the other animals, like these, these deer, that they were, they were about to fall over out of thirst. They, they were about to die. And you see these deer, they're coming closer and completely against anything in their nature. They're, they're, approaching, they're approaching these Komodo dragons because they're in the water. And these deer are probably thinking, we're dead either way. We're either going to die of thirst or this animal is going to eat us. And you think about these Komodo dragons, they don't, they don't eat an animal piece by piece. They, they do the whole thing, right? They're, they have these flexible jaws and they, they gulp the animal whole. And, uh, and then very interesting what happened. So these, these deer are approaching, they're getting closer, they're about to fall over out, out of thirst. And, and then suddenly you see that it starts to rain. Right, so it hadn't rained in a long time, it starts to rain. So then these deer kind of, they, they kind of say, oh boy, the water has come. So then they go and they, and they leave because they know that, that there will be other pools of water accumulating. We think about the story, the story about the woman, the dragon, and the child. Here we think about how, for you ladies who have given birth, perhaps some of you more than once, you think about the things that you would want, the things that you would want 
in your labor and delivery room. The last thing you would want is a dragon in that room. You think about the neighbor down the street who says, hey, I, I thought it'd be great to come by and, and bring you a meal. I thank you very much. Hey, do you mind if I stop and I, and I observe this delivery process? No, you may not. You, you must go, right? And then instead, hey, not in an uninvited guest, but a dragon. Would you want a dragon there, you know, waiting to devour your child? Very much like these deer and this Komodo dragon. You think about what is God thinking? Why, why would he permit uh, Satan to be so close to uh, the, the woman who is the church giving birth uh, to, to, the, to this child, uh, this child who is Jesus, who's taken up to heaven, uh, to the throne of God. So here we understand a bit about what's happening. And we also come to know that for us, we, we have certain understandings about near misses or close calls. Generally, we shouldn't plan for those. You think about uh, the, the engineering limits. So you have a bridge. Okay, there's a certain limit about this bridge. It can take this much weight. And uh, the general principle is if you're going to expect at any one time you have this much traffic on that bridge, then you want to have like maximum 50% uh, of of the weight on the bridge. So you have all this extra room in case something happens, like you have some kind of march going across the bridge where people uh, can pack more densely. And we ought to understand that it seems like throughout history, even what we see in the Bible and throughout history since then, church history, that there have been many of these near misses. It, it wouldn't be wise for us to do that because we, we, there we have so many unknowns. But we ask, well, why is God doing that? He's reminding us that he is in absolute control of all of history. That there were many times when God's people and uh, those who would bring about the future, the life of the deliverer, of the Messiah, that there were these newer misses. And they remind us that our God is one who never misses that he is in control of every detail, he didn't almost lose. Here, as we consider where we are in Revelation, this is a book written during a time of much persecution, affliction, and what seemed like unyielding power of despots, of Caesars. And you ask, why did God allow such great persecution when the church was at that time so young that their leader, our Lord Jesus, was nailed to the cross. It seemed as if Satan had won, but in fact, the truth is, Satan had a decisive defeat. That though the rest of the world, when you think about a leader, if he's nailed to the cross, naked, and is exposed to die, we would say that cause that leader is done. But by faith, we come to a different understanding about our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was naked, nailed to the cross, died the shameful death of a, of a capital criminal, we acknowledge that was not his defeat. That was his great victory. And it is only by faith that you and I can come to understand that. So here, we, we think about how Revelation was written to a, a church, to a people in the first century, even as they were going through the persecutions and the afflictions of life. 
And it was an encouragement to them because it was a reminder to them, as it is to you and to me, it is a reminder that our Lord Jesus indeed is victorious, that he wins, and that he will return, he will reign, and we will reign with him as those who believe in him. And we think about how we've made a transition in Revelation chapter 12. So we think about the book of Revelation basically has two halves, Revelation 1 through 11, and then Revelation 12 to 22. Two halves of this book, 11, 11 chapters each. And the first half of the book describes the conflict between the world and the church, or between believers and unbelievers. It describes generally physical conflicts. You, you think about what's going on with the churches, the letters, the seven churches of, of Asia Minor, and you see there that Satan has his minions, and he works uh, just as you would think that um, our enemies would put uh, spies within the FBI, within uh, the, the CIA and other organizations of our government, our military. You would think also that Satan would be wise enough to put spies within the church. And invariably, there are. We ought to understand that uh, there were difficulties in the church. That there were some of these letters, the seven letters. Uh, two received uh, no rebuke, encouragement only. Uh, there were some that received rebuke and some encouragement. And there were some that received only rebuke. And in fact, there were grave warnings for them. We see also the... The life, of the, or the life of the church, and it also talks about what God was doing in the world uh, regarding the seals, that who is worthy to open the scroll? This was the scroll regarding the one who controls all of history, controls uh, the, the judgment of sinners and the redemption of God's people. There was only one found, and that is Jesus, the lamb who was slain. And then when he opened the scroll, uh, that there were these seals, and the seals describe uh, the turmoil that came upon the church and the world. That there were all kinds of, of uh, cataclysmic events. And then from there came the trumpets. The last of the seal, the seventh seal, brought the trumpets. That there were seven trumpets. And with the trumpets, we also see that there were demons. That these were locusts that they came. And they would uh, bring torment on people. And even during that torment, sinners refused to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. So the second half, we're into the second half of Revelation. And this is the first chapter of it. <clears throat> what we're seeing here is that we see not the physical conflict, but rather the spiritual conflict. And that is between Christ, uh, the church, and Satan as Satan persecutes uh, Christ and the church. So what we see in today's passage, Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6, is that God protects the Son and the Christian church throughout time, despite Satan's rage and his evil workings. God protects the Son and the Christian church throughout time, despite Satan's rage and his evil workings. We'll look at this in three points. First is the woman, second the dragon, and third the child. So the first point is the woman, the church protected and preserved. We have then verses 1 through one and 2, and then verse 6 also. 
And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. <clears throat> Another sign, of, I'm sorry, uh, verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. <clears throat> so in, in these six verses, we have the mention of three characters, the woman, the dragon, and the child. Here we have, in the first two verses, the mention of the woman. So there was this great sign that appeared. The woman, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. First, we consider the identity of this woman. Some would claim that this is the Virgin Mary, but uh, verse 17 of this chapter mentions that she has other offspring, and those who would promote that would believe that Virgin was, uh, Virgin Mary was eternally a virgin. Uh, what we ought to understand, rather, is that this woman symbolizes the community of faith. It symbolizes the church throughout time. So uh, some would claim the church began at Pentecost. Uh, I, I think what we, we would see is that there was a church throughout time. Uh, church began with Adam, and that uh, the the nation of Israel, there was a sense in which that was the visible church before the coming of Christ. So we ought to understand that the woman refers to uh, the faithful throughout time. It refers to the, uh, the, the faithful church throughout time. Now regarding the appearance of this woman, she was clothed with the sun. And then she had a crown of 12 stars. We have some mention of this, this very description in Genesis chapter 37. It was the dream that Joseph had. Remember, Joseph had this dream. Uh, Joseph was hated by his brothers and uh, because Joseph was Jacob's favorite and he put him in charge to oversee his brothers even though he was much, much younger. And he shared his dream. He said that sun and moon and the, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me, essentially is what he was saying. And his father rebuked him. Will, my, will, will I and your mother and your brothers bow, bow down to you? And here are the very description, sun, moon, <clears throat> and 12 stars. And then instead of 11, it's 12 because uh, he's included there. But uh, what we ought to understand is that with this woman clothed with the sun, you think about the sun being a bright light, the light of, of Christ, uh, that the woman uh, the church, that she's clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, that uh, she has a crown of 12 stars, that there is a crown that she possesses. And notice the contrast. Later on in the book of Revelation, it was it Revelation 17, uh, you have another character who is called the Whore of Babylon. And the description there, you, you look at the beauty of of the woman here, she's clothed with the sun, moon at her feet, crown of 12 stars. Then you have the whore of Babylon, Revelation 17, 4. She was clothed in purple and scarlet, right? So purple is the, the, the color of royalty. She had gold and jewels, pearls, and, and then basically the wealth of this world. And then she had this gold cup filled with abominations and immoralities. Well, we ought to understand that 
There are true riches that God gives his people. It's not the riches of this world. All those things will be consumed uh, at the end. That those who have uh, the very light of Christ, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, those are true riches indeed. You ask, where can we buy that? The answer is, you cannot buy it. Jesus gives it freely. How can you pay a ransom so that your life may be set free? We ask, does God, is God one who takes bribes? The answer is no. He takes no bribe. The reason being because he owns everything already. He owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills. He, he owns uh, all, um, all the money. He owns all of Bill Gates' money. He owns all the wealth in this world. It all belongs to him. All the resources, uh, all the monetary units, they're all his. He cannot be bought off. You ask, what is it that you and I truly lack? That we lack righteousness. We're sinners. We're under God's just condemnation. What is it that this woman has? She's clothed with the sun. She's clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And his righteousness is priceless because it cannot be purchased. It is given as a free gift. And that you, as a sinner, are commanded to embrace this promise by faith. When Jesus invites his people, he says, come, come to the waters and drink. You who have no money, come buy bread. By water. You understand. We must have a proper understanding of ourselves. Whatever we possess in this world, in this life, whatever we've earned, that they, they cannot obtain God's favor. They cannot purchase his favor. It's a free gift, this eternal life, this forgiveness of sins. And we ought to understand that it is something of great worth that this woman is adorned by it. We see also the activity of this woman. In verse 2, that she was pregnant. She was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. <clears throat> she was about to give birth. She was about to give birth to this child. Here, uh, we ought to understand <clears throat> that uh, there, the the child Jesus, first off, Jesus is eternal, the second person of the Trinity, that he is spirit, he always existed, he was never created, he always is. It was in theory at, at 0 AD or 0 BC that he took upon himself human flesh. Here, this woman, so it's not Mary, it's the church, that uh, this child comes at the proper time, the time set by God. And then we see also that uh, her time in the wilderness, verse, verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Perhaps some of you are, are thinking here, hey, it seems like this book is hard to understand. Book of Revelation was written uh, as apocalyptic language, meaning it's very different than the other uh, books of the Bible. There's other books, that of history, uh, that of, of poetry, uh, that of uh, letters, direct communication, but Revelation was written as 
in apocalyptic language. It comes in symbols. Truth is portrayed in symbols and images. Here, this woman flees into the wilderness. And what we ought to understand is we think back to the time of Israel, how it was going to the wilderness before they entered the promised land. The promised land was symbolic of heaven itself. We have that in in Hebrews chapter 11, when we're told that it was Abraham, he wasn't fixated on the land. He wasn't fixated on this promised land, that he was only passing through it. He only got to see it. He lived in a tent there. He passed through. God's promise was your children will possess this land. It didn't bother him. The reason why is because his focus was on heaven itself. So also, Christ's bride, the church, goes through the wilderness. 1260 days is not a literal 1260 days. It's describing the period between Christ's ascension and his return. That this period uh, of the church going in the wilderness, it's, it's, you can think about it as we as God's people are looking forward to our eternity in heaven, the promised land, and that we go through a time of persecution and affliction before we get there. This is why we have those who ask the question, who, who just become Christians and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if now that we're Christians, now that we're saved, we should just be beamed up to heaven. We should just, God should just take us now. Well, there's wisdom in God in saying, no, there is much that you need to learn and understand that we must be growing. And we must come to understand our dependence on God. It's not as if we fully understand it when he takes us eventually, but there's so much that we need to know and understand even as we go through the trials and the difficulties of life here on earth. So this is the first point, the woman, the church protected and preserved. We have the second point, the dragon, which is Satan, the adversary who deceives in verses three and four. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. We see the appearance of this dragon. It's a great red dragon. Red, the color of blood, of bloodshed, of carnage, of suffering, with seven heads and ten horns, and, and then seven diadems. So you think about horns as a symbol of power, and ten is, uh, is a sense of completeness, and seven heads. So this, this dragon was one who would possess all kinds of earthly power. We must acknowledge, even as we think through letters that were written, Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the principalities, against the forces of darkness in the heavenly realm. That we think about how uh, there are various rulers, that Jesus indeed reigns, but For the time being, you have Satan who is causing his trouble. That if there is a political movement, if there is someone who rises to power by 
especially killing masses of people. That all of these movements is under Satan's uh, control. And of course, Satan is under God's control. But the idea about this dragon, Satan, is, uh, is he's, for example, he's in control of the rulers. He, you know, Pharaoh was described as a dragon. We think about the activity of this dragon. The activity of this dragon is that his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Very description there is that Satan had it all. That he was some type of a high angel, like a seraph. He was a high angel. He had it very good. And he was enamored with his own beauty and his, uh, and his glory. And uh, he thought he could take it all from God. He wasn't satisfied with his place. And he apparently led a number of angels uh, to rebel against God with him. And this is the description there in verse 3 about, uh, I'm sorry, verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So uh, there were a number of angels that fell with him, uh, these demons. And they were basically cast down from heaven. So that Satan was there attempting to cause trouble in heaven. And then he's there to cause trouble on the earth. We think about this description that we read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 5, that he is like this roaring lion. And we ought to understand, I remember as a kid, when I grew up in California, uh, my neighborhood had a bunch of cats. Uh, a lot of neighbors had cats. And uh, at nighttime, I'd sleep with my window open, and I would hear these cats fighting. And I wondered about them. So I was talking with a neighbor, and uh, they're, they're describing to me, hey, let me tell you about the, the cat fight. I said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And he says, well, the one making all the noise is not the one winning. I said, really? So yeah, think about it. The one that's actually winning doesn't have anything to scream about. It's the one that's, that's getting torn to pieces that's going to be screaming in, until, that, until that cat is, uh, is killed or, or runs away. And here we think about the very description about Satan uh, roaming around like a roaring lion. So also, you think about <clears throat> what he does with God's people. <clears throat> For all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, there is true safety in him. That he who believes in Jesus Christ, it's, we're not told that maybe someday you will be saved. The scriptures say, John 5, that he who believes has crossed from death to life. Salvation is not something that may happen to you in the future. For all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, something, it's justification, something that has already happened. There is no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Salvation is a certain thing. That he who is justified by faith has already been justified. It's not something that we're hoping will happen in the future. It's something that has already taken place. So this roaring lion, he gnashes his teeth and uh, uh, tries to uh, scare you, tries to uh, bring you into his authority. He tries to uh, incite fear in you. He tries to deceive you. These are his ways. You see the goal of the dragon. Verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 
if we think about the, the, uh, the scenes, you go back, maybe you have a picture book uh, of, uh, of maybe some of the, the scenes of giving birth, whether it's for nostalgia, uh, going down memory lane, or perhaps it's to narrate to somebody else uh, what, what the event was like. I can think about what some of you ladies would say, oh, this doula, or this, this, uh, this midwife was so helpful. Oh, this, uh, or perhaps, wow, this, uh, this doctor, this OB, this six foot four man with these huge hands. It's like, oh boy, that, that was bad. Or, hey, I remember my hubby. He was so helpful, he got all the ice chips, and he helped me push, and, and out you came. Right? You tell the story to your kids. And, and then you think about, well, uh, would you have wanted this, uh, this enemy of yours, one who wants to take your life, would you want him in, in the labor and delivery room with you? And the answer is, no, absolutely not. Would you want him around your, your soon-to-be-born uh, loved child? The answer is, no, you wouldn't. But we see that God allowed this red dragon to be by this woman. Here, you think about Mary. Think about Mary. She, she didn't have a nice, clean hospital room. She probably had this cattle stall. And uh, there, well, was, was Satan physically present there? The bottom line is, there's more than what we see. This passage is telling us is that there's more to the eye than what's physically present. That there is a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual world that so many people don't see, they don't acknowledge. When we talk about demons or dragons, you know, occasionally you have, you go to a college football, college basketball game, you know, you have uh, some blue devils, you have the red devils, they put on this costume uh, with this, it's always with a goatee, right? They always have a pitchfork, right? And there's always this uh, funny looking tail. And that's the extent to which uh, at least in our culture, we think about devils or demons. In all the cultures, uh, Satan works in different ways, right? So either uh, he's made a caricature of, or he's, uh, he creates deathly fear, and Satan uh, likes to have it either way. One or the other, he's happy. You think about what Satan is attempting to do. Satan is attempting to destroy, to kill to kill, steal, to destroy. And you think about these near misses. Even as you think about Israel, that God allowed the Israelites enslaved for 400 years, that Pharaoh had said, go and you know, take, take, our, take the wealth with you, right? So after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh's advisors had said, hey, listen, uh, they killed our firstborn. Who's next? We're all going to be dead. You, you better let them go. So out they go. And since you're going, you may as well take our gold and silver with you. So you can think about uh, all, all of their back wages for 400 years. And then after the Israelites are gone, then Pharaoh has this change of heart. Hey, you know what? I shouldn't have let them go. I'm going to mow them over with my chariots. And there they are. The Israelites, they, they weren't trained fighters. They were slaves for for at least 10 generations. And they see him coming with the chariots. And they're wondering, what are we going to do? Well, we've got the water on one side. We've got uh, 
Pharaoh and his army on the other side. And normally people would see this and say, hey, you're, you're in a tough spot. This is a tactical nightmare. You're, you're bored by water. And God parts the Red Sea. Because if you have uh, no people, right? if you have no Israelites, then you have no, no Jesus who's the king of the Jews. And then you have David. You think about uh, other scenes where we have these near misses. David uh, was anointed to be king. And it was later, later, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that we're told that one who would come after him would rule forever. This is Jesus who would come. But until that time, there was opposition that Saul, who was this crazy king, crazy man, wicked man. And there was David. David played the harp. It was good that he had the, the skill to play music. And uh, it, would, it would soothe Saul when he had uh, these attacks. Uh, and uh, Saul was there thinking, hey, if only I can throw my spear and pin David to the wall. And yet he missed. Was well, He probably missed twice. But the bottom line is, if there's no David, there's no son of David. These near misses were there. In the time of Esther, in the time of Esther, it was wicked Haman who sought to have all the Jews exterminated. You think about Haman talking to uh, the king. And he said, oh, yeah, there are these people. They have their own laws. They don't care much for the king. And uh, they ought to be exterminated. They ought to be wiped out, every single one of them. The king said, okay, you do what you want. You don't need to contribute money to my account. Just go ahead and do with it. And you think about, well, this could spell the destruction of God's people. But yet there was the beauty pageant winner, Esther. And she was involved there in protecting, uh, protecting God's people and the things that she said and did. And looking forward, you have the birth of Christ. And then Herod, this wicked ruler, he inquired about the Messiah. He asked the, the Magi, the wise men, uh, tell me where he is that I might worship him. This was a bold-faced lie. He wanted to kill him. He saw him as a threat. He realized that oftentimes <clears throat> wicked rulers see Christians as threats. But they don't quite realize that of all the people under their rule, the Christians uh, would be the best subjects because we are commanded to submit to the king, submit to those in authority, to pray for them. Uh, what better subjects can you have? But what they see is that you have a divided loyalty. These Christians are going to submit to and love Jesus more than the ruler. And the rulers already see themselves as divine. So you had Herod wanting to kill this child who would be Messiah. The Magi didn't return to him and tell him where he was, even though they saw him and they worshipped him. So he decided instead, Herod, I'm going to kill off all the male babies in Bethlehem, two years and younger. You think about this. But Joseph received word from God, hey, there's a crazy man. Take the mother and this child to Egypt, which is where he went. You think also, it wasn't a mere near miss. But you think about the temptation of Jesus. And it wasn't once in Matthew 4. It was throughout his life. But the bottom line is, if Jesus is not sinless, then he cannot be the Messiah. There must be a perfect sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice. And that Satan desired his fall. He desired Christ's disqualification. He tempted him in various ways. 
so also you think about how Jesus is without sin. His answers to Satan's temptations were always with the word of God. And it gives us some idea how you and I should respond to the temptations with which we are faced. Satan also dis desires your disqualification. He doesn't say necessarily, hey, you want to bow down and worship me. His, his temptation is, hey, just serve yourself. Right? You're, you're good enough. Hey, look how good you are. Right? You're better than the rest of them. And you think about how Satan will start to tell us these kinds of lies. Hey, you don't really need religion. You just, you just need to go on occasion. Right? You don't really need to follow the teachings. You, you just need to uh, pare it down and uh, you, know, kind of, uh, you look nice. You, you put on nice clothes and, and you smile. The last thing you want to do is give your life to Christ and become one of those Jesus freaks. You realize that Satan is attempting to disqualify God's people, to deceive them, to deceive you, to deceive me. We ought to understand that there is far more that is going on than what we see. We tend to look at the material. We tend to look at what's actually there. We tend to focus on, oh, if we just provide our children with food, good nutrition, uh, and they get a good education, they can get a good job, they can work for a number of years, and they can retire. You know what? I'm doing all that I need to do as a father or mother. Not realizing that for our children, there is also a spiritual battle for them as there is for us. When you think about how if there's anyone or anything attempting a Godward direction, you realize that there will be spiritual opposition. Anyone who desires uh, to serve the Lord, he must expect to face opposition. <clears throat> there is naturally the tendency to pride. There is naturally the tendency to self-reliance. You realize that God will purify you and me. We think that religion can be somehow like a crutch. It can be that little bit of boost that we need. Eh, you know what? <clears throat> I get somehow distracted. If, if only I can get religion into my life, then um, eh, it'll, it'll keep things positive. Not realizing that if you were intent on following Jesus Christ, your life will actually become more difficult rather than easier. It actually become more difficult because this is God's design. If we are going to follow him, that means we must follow him, especially when the times become tough, especially when the opposition and the ridicule come. If God is going to have a people who are purified, eager to do good deeds, then he must have a people who are loyal to him. He will test you. He will try you. He will refine you. There will be many who come and say, hey, I want you to realize it is too costly for you to follow Christ. And I want to see you give up. I want to hear you say it. Jesus isn't worth it. Account of the cost, he's not worth it. And that is Satan saying, hey, come on, I want to hear you say it. 
It's too expensive. Let it go. This is Satan's desire. His attack is not on the world. The world is under his control. His focus is on the Christian who's trying to follow Christ. He wants to see you give up. Apostasy is his goal. Eternal damnation is his dream, his desire for you. So this is the second point, the dragon. The third point, the child. Jesus, who ascended and reigns. There in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So here, we look at what Jesus does. He will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Specifically, we're told here, he is about to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Meaning he will. It's not quite yet. And this is a a reference to Psalm 2. There's various references to Psalm 2 in, in, uh, in Revelation. And if there was any such thing as a messianic psalm, meaning a psalm that speaks about Jesus our Lord, a psalm 2 would be it. There's many, but this is one of the many of them. Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That Jesus will reign all the nations with a rod of iron. That in the meantime, the nations are raging. That the rulers of the nations are plotting together, attempting to overthrow he who is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Where you and I are is we're looking forward to that reign of Christ. We desire his reign to come. This is what we see in Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. We see also that that same thing in Revelation 12. Here we think about how Jesus, this child, we're told, was caught up to God and to his throne. There in verse 5. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This speaks about Christ's ascension. We have an account of it in the first chapter of Acts. That Jesus ascended to heaven. His disciples were there with them. And they saw him go up. And they were still looking. And the warning was that your Savior, Jesus, will return in the same way that you saw him go up. In other words, the angel speaking was saying, hey, guys, get to work. He will return. Don't worry about that. He will be back at the proper time. What does it mean that he ascended? Well, he had to resurrect first. And in order to resurrect, he had to be dead, which he was. You think about Jesus' life. He lived the perfect life. He came to live the perfect life, the life that you and I could not live. He lived the perfect life in full submission to the law and perfect obedience to the Father. He was falsely accused that he was condemned to death by an unjust trial. He died on the cross, the 
the death of capital criminals. The, the criminals next to him, one was an insurrectionist and a murderer, the other was a thief, was it? Uh, the bottom line is uh, he died the death that he did not deserve to die. But he died in place of sinners. He died the very death that you and I deserve to die. That when we look back to his work 2,000 years ago, we should have hope that his death made a payment. It was a payment that you and I should be paying eternally. But yet, his death, his death is what purchased our life. His death is what set us free from bondage to sin and death. In any other situation, people would look at his death and say, you see, your leader is dead. All the followers were run away. Temporarily, Christ's disciples fled. But what happened? It's not as if the, the, the cause of Christ and his church came to an end. You want to know how God is the one who preserves and protects his church? How many kingdoms have risen and fallen? How many kingdoms have come and gone? You look at especially these rulers, these kingdoms, that saw Christianity as their archenemy. The more fervent they were in stamping out Christianity, uh, well, we see two things happening. One is the more quickly or the more powerfully God would remove them. It wouldn't necessarily be overnight, but they essentially destroyed themselves. And then the other thing that we see is that the more uh, the the rulers of the world attempt to stamp out Christianity, the, the more they will actually spread it, and the more the Christ church advances. You see, even in the book of Philippians, that Paul was writing uh, to these believers in Philippi, and he mentions this, and greet those in Caesar's household. Very interesting that here, Caesar, various Caesars, those who thought they possessed absolute power, they, they use Christians as human torches because they say, hey, you want to be the light of the world? I'll light you up. And uh, here, the very idea is that there were servants who became Christians even in Caesar's household. It, it got even to the very household of Caesar. We ought to understand that Christ was brought to the right hand of the Father. Death could not contain him because Jesus had no sin. As we look forward to our own resurrection and our ascension, it's because we're trusting in Christ that just as God raised him, he will raise you also. You who are trusting in him for your salvation, we trust that whatever God promises is true that God never lies. He always speaks the truth. That Jesus is your only hope for salvation. He did not come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. And he freely offers you the forgiveness of sins. He freely offers to you eternal life. That Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, he is the basis for your hope of the same. We saw that Revelation 11 and 12. 
But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. What is the basis of God calling you up to heaven? It is Christ, his death, his resurrection, his perfect payment, his sufficient payment for your sins, that you might be forgiven, that his righteousness freely given to you as a gift, and that as Jesus was raised from the grave, he also will raise you, he will raise me from the grave, all of you who are trusting in him. Jesus was the first to resurrect and ascend And so also we look to him that we also will be raised up by God's power. Here we think about how this passage can be of good use and instruction to us. It's a reminder to us about the great spiritual battle that is going on. That the world cannot see. They don't see it. All they see is the material realm. You think about how difficult things are. You've heard it before. Someone says to you, hey, uh, where, where do you pastor again? Oh, uh, I pastor here at this time. And it's, oh, well, I had to come by and visit. And I was just reminded the other day, my wife told me, hey, think about this person. How long did it take this person to come by? Well, it took four years. It took four years. Well, well what happened there? Well, there's all kinds of things that come up, distractions. Uh, We don't even know what's going on. And then you think about how forever, uh, whenever there's a person who makes a Godward step, how much prayer was involved in that person's life from those around him, from the church, from friends, from family, from those who love them? More difficult for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so also we think about these difficulties regarding people who have good resolutions, but they can't follow through. Understand that it's because of this spiritual battle that's going on. How diligent we ought to be then, understanding the spiritual battle, how diligent we ought to be in prayer for the basic things of life. We also must not be preoccupied with the material realm. Man has a soul. He's not just a physical body. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Man's greatest need is not air, water, food, and shelter. The physical man's greatest need is air, water, food, and shelter. But the spiritual man's greatest need is for righteousness, for new birth. And Satan's greatest weapon against him and his greatest need are lies, deception, and distraction. This passage is also a reminder to you and to me that there is certain victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. God raised him up. He will raise you up also, all of you who are trusting in him. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you.